Hey, everybody, we are here to tell you about a cool new feature on the website that we would love for you to check out. Head to howtosplitatoaster.com and check out the bottom of the page. You'll find a box floating there that says, quote, ask Seth and Pete, close quote. This box is magical. You just type a question in there and the robots behind the scenes will search the actual audio of our entire library of past episodes and not only give you a short answer to your question, but point you to the specific episodes where we discussed your topic so you can listen yourself. At this point, we're just testing it. To know if this feature should be a permanent feature on the website, we need your help. For that, we need you to ask a lot of questions. So head to howtosplitatoaster.com and click the box, Ask Seth and Pete. The robots will do the rest. On with the show. Welcome back to season six of How to Split a Toaster, a divorce podcast about saving your relationships from True Story FM. Today on the show, what do you do when your toaster goes all in on crypto? Welcome to the show, everybody. I'm Seth Nelson, and as always, I'm here with my good friend Pete Wright. If you're a regular listener, you know how much we love to talk about marital assets. Helping you to figure out how to split everything you've collected over the course of your marriage is a big part of what we do. But the last two years, we've seen an evolution of the financial assets coming into the divorce table in the form of digital assets, from cryptocurrency to NFTs. Couples are looking to split their bits in the divorce process. Sandra Rodna is founder of the law offices of Sandra M. Rodna PC, but more importantly, the author of You're Getting Divorced, Now What? And she joins us today to share what she's learned in how digital assets are reframing the discussion of the financial separation. Sandra, welcome to the toaster. Thank you, Seth and Pete. So nice to be here. And I'm excited to talk about this topic with you. Well, it's so nice to have you. I I feel like we're still at this point in the education curve around digital assets that uh, we should define some terms. Can, Can you help us define terms? What do you mean when you talk about crypto, cryptocurrency, NFTs? Okay, well, it's a few different things. Crypto is a general term that's used to talk about cryptocurrency. And cryptocurrency is instead of typical currency, which is our dollars and our cents, cryptocurrency is digital assets. So most people are familiar with Bitcoin. They've heard of Bitcoin, but really there's all types of coins that have been created. Um, Some of them are called altcoins, but some of them are really becoming mainstream as well. So there's, in addition to Bitcoin, there's all types of ticker symbols for all different types of digital coins that people can purchase. And just like how you would have a stock market that would monitor how stocks are going up and down, there's people that monitor the value of uh, cryptocurrency, such as Bitcoin, going up and down also. So it's another type of asset. And that's really no different than how the dollar will fluctuate on the market versus the yen or the British pound, right? It's so it's just another form of currency that trades at different levels. So cryptocurrency is the the money, the currency. NFTs, that stands for a non-fungible token. So something that's fungible is like a dollar bill, right? Like you can just, if I give you a dollar, then it's mine and 
that's it. Non-fungible means that it can't be traded that way. So it's more of a unique thing. So people have heard of funny things like the first tweet is a, was a non-fungible token that was sold for a lot of money. And what it is, is that people can own that asset, even if it's a digital thing, and it, it has value because people are interested in it and want it. So that's a, an NFT is a non-fungible token. But then there's all other types of digital assets as well. I, which I think we're going to get into talking about today. Well, I hope so. I it, because I, I think it's important, you know, not for the least of which that it is it, it causes complication potentially in the divorce process, and and that's what I'm what I want to get to. If you particularly because, and this is the only <laughs> the only experience I have in hearing about this complication in the divorce process is I think my spouse is uh, hiding our assets in Bitcoin. What what am I going to do? How how do I get to the other side of this? And so I I am interested in your experience and uh, in in how you manage the process of figuring out where conflict exists in the divorce process around crypto. Well, financial infidelity is nothing new to divorce. People have been hiding money from their spouses in divorce since I guess the, the day divorce started. What's Hold on one second. Let me just uh, let me just check under my mattress here. Make sure I've got everything where it's supposed to be. <laughs> okay, I'm all good. Sorry for the interruption. Go ahead. So, I guess back in the day, people would hide financial assets in the Swiss accounts. You know, you would always hear about it. it's in a Swiss account or it's an offshore account. But what happened with cryptocurrency when it first came out, when Bitcoin first came out, crypto means hidden, right? Like cryptic, hidden. So People who invested in it said, well, this is a great way to hide money from other people, including their spouses. But actually, we all know, if you're familiar with cryptocurrency, that there's something called a blockchain. And once you have the information, which looks like gobbledygook if you don't know what it is, but it's like an account number, you have a public key and a private key, but the public key is what's on the blockchain and it shows like what that account is. So if you had a transaction with somebody using cryptocurrency, it would be on the blockchain. And if um, you knew what that information was, then you'd be able to find every transaction that was done. Let's talk through that a little bit. Let's okay. put some meat on this bone. So okay. Pete has his very first iPod he ever had. He says, you know what? I'm ready to sell this. It's been near and dear to my heart. Seth, I'm going to sell it to you, but only if you pay me in Bitcoin. We'll just use that. So I happen to have some Bitcoin. And so I transfer my Bitcoin to Pete. Right? That's how the transaction takes place. Am I, am I there so far? Yep. Okay. And that will then be on a blockchain which I always think is just like a ledger. Right. Right. That's exactly what it is. Okay. And then somebody could, somebody else, if they had the right kind of code to look at that blockchain, they could go in and they could say, oh, it wouldn't necessarily be my name, but for this sake, Seth transferred a hundred Bitcoin to Pete. Pete got the Bitcoin and then it's up to Pete to make sure he FedExes me out the very first iPod he ever had. Is that how it works? Seth, that's a perfect explanation and very simple terms for people to understand. That's exactly what it is. If you don't have that public key, which is the, that account number, that's really just alphanumeric, a number of letters and numbers together, you wouldn't be able to track that transaction. But if you did have it, you would be able to track it. So getting back to your question about 
what do you do in a divorce in order to find that? If there was, if, if the spouse has a suspicion that there was some type of digital assets, then we would look for it. So we joked around right before the show about mining. So Bitcoin is something that people can mine. They, they have to have special equipment computer equipment in order to do that. And usually those people will know that their spouse had a mining account because you really can't hide the equipment. You would know about it. So let's talk about mining for a a minute. So if Pete and I do this financial transaction, but I'm at the bank and I write a check and I send it to Pete and Pete goes to his bank and he cashes the check and then his bank notifies my bank and the money transfers from my bank to his bank, and the banks take care of that transaction to show the difference. Isn't that what miners do? They're the ones with the computer equipment that are are showing the transaction. Is that what they do? Well, what they're doing is they're helping Bitcoin to show what all the different transactions are, and then they earn Bitcoin by doing it. So that's that's the incentive right. for people to have mining accounts is to earn the money. But yes, that is basically what they're doing is they're tracking the transactions on the blockchain and they're helping the blockchain to document those transactions. And by doing that, they're earning Bitcoin. Right. And they don't have to be FDIC insured. They're not a bank. I could get a bunch of computer equipment and I can learn how to mine and I can say, I'm a miner and I'm actually competing against all the other miners to be there first to get that transaction. Isn't that right? That's exactly right. In case the law gig doesn't work out, Pete. Yeah, I know. I'm telling you. (laughs) You got the number lined up. And, and I would add it it is, it is the, the blockchain is really important in this conversation because as you said, it is, it is like a public bank statement with anonymized names on it. You can go look at it. And I am on the blockchain explorer right now. And the first transaction that I see is, uh, let's see, 2.848 Bitcoin that is being exchanged between two public keys that I can see completely visible to me. And do you, Seth, do you happen to know what the value of 2.8 uh, Bitcoin is today? No, but I do have a good Bitcoin trading story that I'll tell later in the show. A little right. teaser there for you. <laughs> well, this this uh, exchange uh, was for $84,144 for 2.8 Bitcoin. So one Bitcoin, which is what I would have charged you for that original iPod, because I think you might have given it to me at this point, right. is, uh, is is very, very high. The market is, is in flux, but all of these transactions are public. Back to this divorce conversation, if you know the public key of somebody, you can find every transaction that they have made on the public blockchain. So usually in my practice, what I do is if we have high earners that have low assets, so they have, they're very high earners, they look like they don't have a lot of assets for some reason, suddenly, you know, maybe they did before, but it's not making sense. It's not adding up. The question I'll usually ask is, does your spouse have digital assets? And sometimes they don't know. And sometimes they do know. You first need to have the suspicion. It needs to be a significant amount of money in order to start engaging forensic accountants and forensic um, computer analysts to look for it. But if there's a suspicion, a legitimate suspicion, and you think it could be a significant amount, as far as the discovery that an attorney would do is one of the things you would get is the hard drive of the computer. You would have a forensic computer analyst who is going to go through and they'll look for things like the ticker symbols because 
The other thing they would look for is the first transaction that somebody made for digital assets had to be using traditional currency. You have to start there. But then the person might say, well, I had Bitcoin, I got rid of it, and we don't have it anymore. Well, they might have just bought another digital asset. And that's where knowing the ticker symbols for these different types of alt altcoins, they call it, but different types of um, digital coins comes in handy. And that's where you have someone who specializes. Right. I'm going to back up a little bit here. Yeah. So okay. I'm going to unpack like two or three things you said there. So the first thing you said is, look, if you have a suspicion, your lawyer should be asking for, do you have Bitcoin or any cryptocurrency or any digital currency? Pete, believe it or not, Florida got something right for a change. Oh, I can't wait. In Florida, check your local jurisdiction, ring the bell. Mm -hmm. On mandatory financial disclosures, what you're required to disclose in, now includes any digital currency. You're required to let us know up front. But shockingly, not everyone tells the truth. So to Sandra's point, what happens is I go through the bank statements and somewhere in those bank statements, there's going to be the first transaction where you actually buy your cryptocurrency. And where would that happen? Like on a bank statement, what, what might you look for there? Well, it would just say the transaction. It would say what you purchased. It's not an easy answer because there's all different places that you can buy that first transaction from. But if it says something like Coinbase or, I mean, you Robin Hood like or there's all these different places to get you into. And so if you're, if you're like new to all this, which a lot of people are, I want you to think of this as, well, if someone's going to buy a stock, they could have opened up a TD Ameritrade account. They could have opened up an account with a different brokerage firm. So think of these web-based websites like Robinhood and other type. Coinbase, um, is, the big Coinbase one, yeah. is a big one. Think of those as like the TD Ameritrades or like that. You got to get your money to them. And then from there, you get to the stock market. You can't just go to the stock market directly. There's a step in between. So that's what you're looking for. And sometimes you can do it on a credit card statement. So you got to look at your credit card statements too. But once it's in, you can trade all the crypto you want from one crypto to another to all this different stuff. But if you want the cash, it's got to come back out. Now, some businesses are starting to take crypto as forms of payment. So you can look at that, but that's where you get into these experts. So I, I'm always just trying to break it down. That's really great. And Seth and Pete, I'll tell you something really interesting. If people are saying, well, how would I know the different types of exchanges that you can buy crypto on? Just watch a basketball game or a baseball game and see who all the sponsors are. All of the sponsors, Smart. all digital currency now. It's it's really interesting. But, you know, you really can educate yourself pretty easily just by watching who's sponsoring everything. And that's how you know how mainstream digital assets are becoming because it's everywhere. Venmo, everywhere. Everywhere you can think of, it's it's there. Well, and, and that's a really good point. You just made a really good point. And this is one of the reasons I think it's it, it can be hard to to uh, dissect the different kinds of currencies because Venmo um, is, you know, well, a lot of people use that to exchange fiat currency, right? Yep. Like that is just an, another normal way to, to exchange regular like dollars, not, you know, uh, altcoins. And so it can be confusing to see or to, to have to parse where the money is in your relationship. Right. Right. So that's why it's not an easy answer. However, 
if there is a significant amount, and again, we're talking about high earners. We're not talking about someone who bought Dogecoin and, you know, when it was in for a minute and they they just had a little bit. Uh, we're talking about people who have significant assets, who maybe got Bitcoin early and, and really made some significant money. Then you're going to be investing the money in a forensic um, computer analysis, forensic accountant who specializes in digital assets because they'll be looking for that and they'll know what to look for. So my job as an attorney isn't to find the assets. My job is to recognize that the asset exists, to find it out, and then to get the correct professionals to help us get that because digital assets are marital assets too, and they they would be divided in um, during a divorce. I, you know, I'm looking, I'm uh, again, I've been just sort of clicking around blockchain. As you've been talking, I've been navigating the different things that we're talking about. And it, it, I get to the top NFTs. Uh, and NFTs, again, you you started, it's, in this case, they're digital works of art. I'm looking at the top NFTs are all Board Ape Yacht Club, uh, which are all digital. They're, they're just images, like any other image you might uh, create on your computer. If you're an artist, an animator, you create this image, but it's it becomes an NFT when you assign it that status and freeze it in the blockchain that when it become when it's become it becomes an nft and it is extradable like any other work of physical art like a painting on the wall and the top nft today is priced at 170 uh, ethereum coins uh, or $297,000 for a, a piece of digital art at, at what point does does digital art in, in this case, an NFT in the divorce case become a, 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 a point of contention. Have you run into that where people are trying to figure out how how to fight over an NFT? The NFT is fought over similarly to art. So you're not going to want to split the NFT. You're going to want to have that asset. So in uh, New York, where I am, we're what's called an equitable distribution state, which means you only get the marital portion of anything. Music to my ears right there, Pete. I love it. <laughs> Same in Florida. Instead of, a, <laughs> instead of a community property state, which is more difficult. But usually what we do is we do something we call equalize and divide. So you figure out what the total value of the marital estate is. And then each person's getting 50% of that marital estate. So how that's divided up doesn't matter. So you're not necessarily going to split the NFT. They might get that in exchange for not getting something else. So it's the same thing as art. You would get that piece of art. Or if you wanted to do the value of 50% of that, you could do that as well. But the value fluctuates with an NFT, just like it fluctuates with any other um, digital asset, brokerage account asset, you know, the, the value goes up and down. So sometimes it's better to just say, I'll, I'll take that piece of art or that NFT, because I'll wait and see when the value goes up and sell it in an up market instead of just getting 50% of the value while it's a down market, for example. Yep, exactly. You get the house, I get the Board Ape Yacht Club image. Right. Right. <laughs> you, you got it. Yeah. You got it. So this is where my amazing investment in crypto comes from. <laughs> it was a few years back when crypto was really new. And I knew nothing about it. And you know me, Pete, being a law nerd, and I want to learn what's going on in these cases. I dived into crypto. I was studying it. I was reading it. I was getting any article I could find on it. And just like most people, you learn from doing. So I went on to Coinbase. 
I put in $50 and I bought some Bitcoin. When I say some Bitcoin, it wasn't even one full Bitcoin. It was a sliver of a Bitcoin. Of a sliver of a sliver. And I totally forgot about it. That's how you do it. And it was like a couple years later (laughs) and it was like $350, right? Which is 165% annualized return on my investment, which I told my son about this. And immediately he said, why didn't you put in 50,000? <laughs> <laughs> Nothing is ever good enough for you, boy. Yeah. <laughs> well, this, this actually leads me into our listener question. And I, 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 if, you, if you would indulge me some reading, I would like to, to read and get your, the response from both of you. I read this post on Reddit of a renter looking for legal advice who says that when they moved out of their apartment, they received only $1,600 of the $3,000 they provided to their landlord as the initial security deposit. It's going to be hard for me to read the whole thing without chuckling. I apologize in advance. When they asked what happened to the rest of the money, the landlord explained that they'd put the money into a money market account that had lost value and then admitted they'd actually invested it in Bitcoin. The landlord tried to claim that, quote, this is how a lot of landlords operate now, despite most likely uh, falling afoul of guidelines on how landlords are supposed to hold deposits. Okay, this isn't a question about rent. But what if I uh, what do I have to worry about that my soon to be former spouse is rushing our divorce because she wants to pay out less cash based on the value of the, the value of low Bitcoin? Thanks all. Does that make sense? Trying to game the market to get out of your divorce quick? I think people do that. And that's kind of what we were talking about with the NFT. What I advise my clients to do, and again, I'm always analogizing stocks when I'm talking about digital assets because of the fluctuation in the market, the stock market as well. But a lot of times you don't want to take the value in a low market. So if that that spouse in the um, example that you're giving it would say, you know, oh, here's 50% of the value today. I wouldn't advise my client to do that. I would say take 50% of the coin, get 50% of the Bitcoin or whatever the digital asset is and hold on to it till it's an up market instead of a down market. And uh, I think that's where people make mistakes if they don't understand it, if they think, well, there's nothing I can do. Um, they're doing it during a down market. So my advice to the listener would be, yeah, take 50% of the asset, not 50% of the value of the asset, and then wait till it increases in value before you get rid of it. Okay, Pete, good yeah. news. Yeah. Good news. You got two lawyers on the show talking now, and we're going to give you three opinions. <laughs> okay. Is that always the case? <laughs> you have a different opinion. Interesting. Let's see. No. Well, first off, I agree wholeheartedly in your analysis. If you are thinking, hey, this is a down market, I don't want to take 50% of the value. So let's just use numbers. There's $100 worth of Bitcoin and you have $100 in a checking account. But you're thinking, man, Bitcoin's going to go up. Don't take the $100 in the checking account. What you do, you give your spouse 50 bucks out of the checking account and you take half of the Bitcoin. Financially, it's the same right now. And that way, if you want to take the risk on Bitcoin and you think it's going up, you're going to have that benefit. Now, I've added to Josh's question. So I'm adding some facts here to show some different outcomes. So I don't really disagree. I'm just adding more. In my hypothetical, 
if there's $100 in cash and there's $100 of value in Bitcoin, I would tell my client, I don't care which one you take. If you think Bitcoin's going up and your spouse doesn't want to give up half of it, take the $100 in cash and go buy Bitcoin. <laughs> right. Just do it today. That's another and, way to do it. And it's that's another way to do it. Yeah. But in my hypothetical, I made it easy because there's $100 in cash. Here's the problem when there's no cash or you know what? We've already divided the house. We sold it or like I'm keeping the house and I'm going to give you more of the retirement accounts. And like we've divided everything up. Right. And now you're left with the proverbial piece of art that can't get split. So if it's an NFT, that's a problem. But if it's a Bitcoin or other cryptocurrency, then I totally agree that you just split the account. Now, here's the thing. And this has happened in cases. There are tax consequences when you buy stock. So Pete, if you buy stock at Apple at $100 and you're buying it every year on January 1st, the next time you go to buy it and you buy one share, 100 bucks, but the next time you buy it, the next lot you buy is $500. You have two shares. One you bought at 500, one you bought at 100. If you get divorced, if you could pick you would want the $500 share because when you sell it, you have a higher what's called tax basis, cost basis. So if you sell it for $600, you only have $100 in gains. You'll pay less tax on that capital gain. If you sell the $100 share for $600, you've got $500 in gain and the IRS is going to take more of that tax. Okay. You with me? Yeah. Okay. Gets a little technical, but here's what you need to know. Ask your lawyers. If you're dividing assets like a brokerage account and you're going to split the account evenly or the Bitcoin evenly, you want to talk to them about like kind exchange because then the $100 share of Apple, you get half of that share and your spouse gets half Mm -hmm. and the $500 share, you get half of that share and your spouse get half that equalizes the tax burden. This can be a huge savings or cost to you if it's not done right. So just put a little check next to this, write it down. If you have these types of accounts, talk to your lawyer about a like kind exchange. Even if you don't understand my example, I'm doing the math in my head and you're driving in the car and you can't write it down. But this is a big issue and it can be the same with cryptocurrency. That that is so important what you just said. And that's really one of the reasons why I always advise my clients, and I'm sure you do the same thing, that they should always talk to an accountant and their financial professional to talk about how any settlement that they're entering into for the divorce would be tax impacted because people don't realize capital gains. And that is so great that you brought that up because... Yes, the amount that you originally paid for it makes a big difference when you're um, figuring out. So how you take your settlement, even if it's the same amount of money, makes a huge difference. So that's a great point that you brought up. I'm so glad you did that. Well, thank you. Don't don't compliment me too much. It makes Pete nauseous. Yeah, don't do that in front of me. Uh, <laughs> I kindly request you leave that kind of stuff out of the show. I uh, this. I mean, you talk about the tax implications, and and because we've already started the conversation early with the unregulated nature of talking about crypto. Um, 
how often do you run into this case where people didn't think about their tax burdens at all and have in sort of infused the the divorce proceeding with this un, unexpected tax burden? Just the act of investigation into their finances have, have revealed that they forgot to take into account the tax burden. As the attorney, um, when we're working at a settlement, I always try to have them talk to a uh, like I said, a financial pro- uh, professional and their accountant just to see how it's going to be tax impacted or what the implications are. In New York, equitable distribution is not taxable where maintenance or what um, everybody else calls alimony, New York calls it maintenance, does have tax consequences. Only on the state level, on the federal level, they change that. But these are things that we talk about how they're taking it. For example, I had someone who came to me once and they got the same, their 50% share, but they were only in their 30s and their 50% share was all in retirement money. So she had no liquid assets and she thought that she could just take that money and she didn't realize that there was going to be a penalty and tax implications if she did that. So she had gone to a mediator that she found online and they just prepared this and so she really did get 50% of the marital estate, but in the worst way she could have gotten it because she couldn't use that money for so long. So I think that's why it's important that Seth brought up that, you know, every settlement's not the same. Like you really do have to look into the consequences of how you're taking that money um, because it can make a, a huge difference, really a, a, a life altering difference. Because if you thought you were going to be able to use that money, for example, to buy another house or buy some place to live and you have no at access to it without severe taxes and penalties. Well, that's like you took a lot less money than what you actually got. Yeah. And and back to what we started the show with, where it kind of where we said, hey, people have been hiding money from their spouses for years in what we call financial infidelity, where or they just don't manage the money well. And Pete, you raised the question, well, you weren't, uh, you know, you didn't see this tax burden coming or here it was. What you will be surprised at, Pete, more often than not, when you have people who don't manage their money well, one of the big things they fail to do is file their taxes. So you will be in the beginning of a case, and I'll say to my client, who might not be the one who's been managing the money, they're trusting it's all getting done. I'll say, okay, well, let's get your tax return. She's like, oh, I never see them. Or he'll say, I never see them. She handles them. And then mandatory disclosures, last three years of tax return, they don't have them. They're not filed. So now we have this literally from one side of the transaction for the spouse that thought they were being filed, an unexpected tax burden that has penalties, interest, and the original tax due. In in Florida, that's still a marital debt. Yeah. So that's a problem. In New York as well. Yeah. Yeah. So it is just, once again, we've talked about it on the show before. It never hurts to become educated on where the money's coming in, where's it going out, make sure you see your taxes every year. And I'm not saying go through a fine-tooth comb on everything, but some basics never hurts. And if your spouse is unwilling to share that information, then I think you need to have some other discussions. Or don't sign a tax return that you don't know anything about. A lot of people say, I just signed it and I didn't read it. But once you sign it, you're responsible. So you, it's hard to make that claim. 
Seth, it's back to school season. Oh my goodness, back to school season. It's hard enough uh, for any parent and child, but if you're in the middle of a divorce, oh, it can be a doozy. Uh, welcome back to school. You got to get the backpacks and the and the uniforms and the list of... Um, lunches. Well, not lunches. You got to just do the supply list. I mean, that's oh, a yeah. nightmare. Mm. And then on top of that, it's especially true going back to school when alcohol and child safety is a concern. This is this is the real stuff. This isn't just protractors. This is the real stuff. And you know on uh, How to Split a Toaster, we are a divorce podcast about saving your relationships. And our mission is to help divorcing couples prepare for co-parenting in the best possible way they can uh, during back to school. And as you know, that's one of the reasons we've partnered with Soberlink to help offer resources to help you navigate the upcoming back to school season and as you know soberlink is a remote alcohol monitoring technology created to help prove sobriety in cases which just gives a party to say look i'm not drinking even if you always knew you weren't drinking this lets you just say here is third party independent verification evidence that the kids are safe when they're with me these devices, the, the Soberlink device, they're, they're amazing. The system itself includes a, a, a breathalyzer, this high-tech device. It has facial recognition that shows you, it allows you to receive real-time updates from monitored co-parents anytime, anywhere, allowing for swift intervention for improved child safety. I've worked with them at the firm on more than one occasion. I know they've helped hundreds of thousands of people document proof of sobriety in real time for peace of mind in child custody cases. They're currently offering a free back to school and divorce packet that includes question and answers with top divorce attorneys, back to school checklists, communication tips, and much more. And you can get this back to school packet. And you know, this is fantastic. If you go to soberlink.com slash toaster, one, you're going to help us out. Not going to lie, that helps us out. Soberlink.com slash toaster. But two, you get the gift of scrolling down and seeing a picture of Seth Nelson. He's right there on the page. That's how you know you've arrived at the right place. Visit Soberlink.com slash toaster. The gift of knowing you're helping the show, you're helping your uh, your own co-parenting relationship, uh, and you're also getting a gift of Seth Nelson. Well. How can you do wrong with that? Maybe two out of three is not bad. thanks everybody and thank you so much to Soberlink for sponsoring How to Split a Toaster last question as we get to wrapping up um, which is about the you know we've already sort of led into this when you talk about the discovery process is there anything different about dealing with somebody with Bitcoin assets particularly if they are if you're worried about them hiding Bitcoin assets that you have to to do different uh, from the perspective of uncovering these assets, um, I, I know that just because the market is so volatile and it is so private, I, what is the risk of your spouse, soon to be former spouse, um, I don't know, trashing hard drives, do, doing something to to further obscure the nature of the investigation? Well, I advise attorneys to do in this new world where there are d- digital assets that you really have to be paying attention to in order to protect your clients is that with the summons and complaint. When you file your divorce action, 
Along with that, in New York, we have something called automatic orders, which says you can't dissipate marital assets, but you should also include in that, which is not on our automatic orders, preservation of digital assets and hard drives. Because you, if you serve it with the summons and complaint and say they're not supposed to do that and then they start destroying things, the courts will have remedies available for your clients if they do that. And and really, why are you destroying a hard drive if there's nothing to hide? So you can ask for something, what we call in New York, a negative inference, if somebody does that, which is an assumption that there was something there to be found if you <laughs> destroyed the hard drive. But another thing that um, I think that we should talk about before closing is that in addition to the digital assets that you might have from Bitcoin or, you know, game such as purchasing a stock or digital coins, is there something called the metaverse? And in the metaverse, people can actually buy, for example, advertising space, or they can buy digital real estate, and all of those things derive income. So in addition to just owning coins, there could be income that's being derived from the metaverse that you would also be something that a spouse would be entitled to because that would be part of your income that might not necessarily show up. So that's something that's important for them to note as well. So and the other thing is some people are now taking part of their income, part of their salary in digital assets. So for purposes of calculating child support, you really want to be careful because since the value of the digital assets goes up and down, you want to make sure that your agreements protect that so they're always getting the correct amount of child support. In other words, if your child support obligation is a certain amount and the person wants to pay it in partially digital digital assets, I wouldn't agree to that because that money goes up and down. And if they're taking their income partially in digital assets, I would want to see whatever the employment contract was to make sure that what the guaranteed amount of income is, even if part of it's in digital assets. So there's a, we're getting a little bit technical, but there's a lot to look into to make sure that your client is protected. In the employment law area, you see a lot of cases that are coming out of people that are violating, employers that are violating wage and hour laws by uh, paying people with digital assets because when the market fluctuates, they're not getting the right amount. So I would argue that we, as divorce attorneys, matrimonial attorneys, should be paying the same type of attention to our clients in the area of child support and maintenance, which is what New York calls alimonies. Well, this gets back to Josh's question about the renter, right? Who The, the landlord's just going to give you 1600 on your three grand back because of Bitcoin? That right. right. So I would I would be looking at the contract because if it didn't if that wasn't disclosed, they're they're entitled to the full amount. Right. Yeah. Josh hit it on the head when he goes, I'm sure they're skirting some other rules on what landlords are supposed to be doing. But to Josh's point, like this isn't really his question, but it does raise it about hey, this stuff fluctuates. So when it crosses the transom into the into the fiat world, right? That that's that's something we have to take into consideration. Now that we know about this, if people are getting married and they're doing a prenuptial agreement or a postnuptial agreement, when you're listing the assets, which at least in New York, a, a prenup or a postnup is not enforceable if you don't list all the assets that the person owns at the time that you enter into the agreement, make sure that the public key is on there. If there's digital assets that are being disclosed, include the public key because that's not revealing anything. It's not the private key, but you'll be able to trace that asset if someone tries to say later on that they don't no longer have it. And if you don't have that public key, you wouldn't be able to do it. That's a great point. 
Pete, did you see a recent transaction on, on Bitcoin that just happened? Do you still have that website up? <laughs> this makes me very nervous. What, what, what makes why you nervous that, about What that? are we doing? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, it's going so fast, man. $899, uh, 570 Somebody just spent $61,000. Uh, I've, I've seen a lot of transactions. Okay. Well, I'm just letting you know, we might've just sold the show. Okay. That's. <laughs> oh, wait, so, there it is for $249. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> oh no, that guy, that guy overpaid. <laughs> As attorneys, are either of you accepting uh, alt currency for your work? I'm not. I uh, refuse to answer that question on the grounds that may incriminate. <laughs> no, <laughs> I am not accepting that as uh, currency uh, or for our hard, yeah, hard work and time that we put into our cases. Say neither am I. So we're, we, you know, it's a brave new world. We're just, we just we're so old school, Pete. You know. <laughs> well, uh, hey, Sandra, thank you so much for hanging out with us, for teaching us a little bit and uh, and having this conversation. Thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. It was really great and very interesting talking to both of you. Thank you. Where where do you want to send people to learn more about uh, your work? We'll put links in the show notes to every place appropriate. And my website is radnalaw.com, R-A-D-N-A-L-A-W.com. Got it. You got it. Thank you so much. If you're in the great state of New York, the Empire State, <laughs> got some questions, give her a call. Yeah. Thank you so much. Absolutely. I'll tell you, we are thrilled to be uh, embarking on season six of this show. We've got a great lineup of, of folks coming to uh, to sit in with us uh, and, and talk to us about the divorce process and you. Uh, in the meantime, don't forget. Send us questions. How to split a toaster.com slash ask a question. You can uh, ask us your divorce questions just like Josh did. Josh D did. Be just like Josh. Ask us a question. We'll talk about it on the show. We want to help you out. Uh, again, on behalf of Sandra Rodna and Seth Nelson, America's favorite divorce attorney, I'm Pete Wright. And we'll catch you next time right here on How to Split a Toaster, a divorce podcast about saving your relationships. Seth Nelson is an attorney with NLG Divorce and Family Law with offices in Tampa, Florida. While we may be discussing family law topics, How to Split a Toaster is not intended to, nor is it providing legal advice. Every situation is different. If you have specific questions regarding your situation, please seek your own legal counsel with an attorney licensed to practice law in your jurisdiction. Pete Wright is not an attorney or employee of NLG Divorce and Family Law. Seth Nelson is licensed to practice law in Florida.